to be joined by Nathalie Prouvé, who worked at the UN Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights from 2002 to 2020. I think it's really fair to say that Natalie has had an exceptionally interesting and varied career, of which we will hear more soon, but I just wanted to give you a short background. In October 2010, Natalie was appointed as Chief of the Rule of Law and Democracy Section at the Office for the High Commissioner for Human Rights. Previously, Natalie was Secretary to the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination between 2002 to 2008, and the Secretary of the Human Rights Committee from 2008 to 2010. In 2006, she was assigned temporarily to the UN country team in Moscow as Senior Human Rights Officer. From 1995 to 2002, Natalie was Legal Officer for Europe and Central Asia at the International Commission of Jurists, the ICJ, where she was also in charge of worldwide programmes regarding economic, social and cultural rights and racial discrimination. Natalie started her professional career in academia in the UK, where she taught and did research in public international law, international human rights law and EU law. She was at the University of Warwick from 1987 to 1989, Lancaster from 1989 to 1991 and the University of Cambridge from 1991 to 1995. She holds a doctorate in law from Lee University in France. Natalie, welcome to The Passion Factor, pursuing a career in human rights. Hello, Vicky. I'm delighted to be here with you. So I think um, the first question I ask all of my guests is really, where did it all start for you? Sort of what motivated you to, to work in the human rights field? Well, it wasn't a straightforward um, journey. Um, regrettably, at the time when I was studying law, um, at least in my university, and I think in an overwhelming majority of French universities, if not all, um, international human rights law, European human rights law, or, or national human rights law as such didn't exist. Um, so uh, I remember desperately uh, looking for all kinds of optional subjects in my, in my law studies that um, now, with hindsight, I recognize as having some linkage with my interest in human rights, uh, but without the name, without, um, you know, the labeling, um, and without quite knowing that this was what I was going to want to do as a career. So um, I sort of went from an interest to in labor law to an interest in administrative law because it, you know, sort of touched on some human rights issues uh, in some shapes and forms, constitutional law, etc. So that really wasn't, wasn't something that I had identified from the very beginning. Um, eventually, I wanted to do um, a doctorate in public international law with issues related to self-determination, which I suppose, again, um, revealed somehow my interest in, in human rights aspects, but that, that wasn't possible. So I ended up doing a doctorate in European law, which had nothing to do with human rights. Um, and um, I don't know if you want me to already start touching upon my first job or if I, I should uh, pause and wait. But by all means, carry on. I mean, the, the segue to that was kind of your career journey to, to where, where you were just before you left the UN, really. So that kind of makes a nat nice natural segue to my, my next question, I suppose. Okay. Well, then, um, so after I got my PhD, 
Um, it was more a question of finding a job without any particular aspiration at anything um, in terms of, of uh, subject matter other than, than the one that I had ended up doing as a PhD in European law. So um, as you mentioned, um, I ended up at Warwick uh, because I was very lucky that um, when I was doing, um, in fact, the, the year called DEA, Diplôme d'études approfondies, which is a, a fifth year um, of law studies um, before we can embark on a PhD, or we could in those days, now would be called Master de master master two in in french universities um i i heard that little law school was going to be twinned with warwick so that allowed me to go and be uh, the french law lecturer at warwick for um, two academic years in fact i i didn't mention that to you so that was 81, 82, or 82, 83, I can't even remember now. Um, and then I did my PhD research, which um, was a subject linking the UK to, to the EU. Um, please do not laugh, listeners. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then, um, so Warwick then called me back after I got my PhD, um, um, telling me that, uh, giving me the good news that... Um, the um, EU law or European Communities law, as it was called at the time, post was uh, vacant for two years. So that's how I ended up um, teaching um, European law for a couple of years. Um, then I moved on to Lancaster to do the same, but frankly, with a, a, a deep sense of lack of fulfillment. Uh, deep down, I knew this, is, this absolutely was not what I wanted to do. Um, that um, European competition law was not for me, that uh, training students to go uh, and become wealthy solicitors in the big law firms was, was not my aspiration in life, to tell you the truth. So I was very lucky that when I moved to Cambridge, I was given opportunities. Um, I was there as the uh, assistant director of the newly created Centre for European Legal Studies, but um, from the start, I said I wanted to teach public international law and I was given that chance. And I was given the chance to give a couple of seminars on the LLM uh, in international human rights law. Uh, so those, those were my, my very first successes at, at getting closer to what by then I had identified as my interest, only I didn't have the professional background, nor frankly, the educational background. Um, and therefore, um, I, it, it had to start somewhere, but I started small. And then I realized, which I'd known for a while, academia was not for me. I wanted um, to do something more hands-on. Um, but I had very little networking skills. So I'm sure we'll talk about the importance of network, networking and networking, developing networking skills very early. Um, I really knew very little about the international organizations, whether they be international NGOs or, or international uh, IGOs. Um, so I didn't know where to start. And um, I have to say, and, and um, listeners should, should know this, um, you know, the, the young students who are trying to find their way that um, I have to say luck, um, luck is important, uh, has a lot to do with how my career developed. Uh, but also the capacity when when luck um, you know sort of appears on your on your life path to 
to seize the opportunity and to grab it. Um, and for me, the breakthrough was when I heard of a colleague who'd actually unsuccessfully applied for uh, what became my position at the ICJ. And um, he didn't get the post because he wasn't a specialist in European law, because he wasn't particularly a specialist in, in human rights law either. And at least um, I could brand myself to the ICJ as having some knowledge of Europe, which allowed me uh, to um, um, use that as a stepping stone, stone to get the position at the ICJ. And that, and that was the time when I had to make um, a very, very daring jump, uh, which was leaving Cambridge. And I, I remember my contract had just been renewed for four years, um, just declining that and, and going for a job which everybody thought was very risky uh, and was not going to get me very far when I had it all, you know, cut out um, by having gotten this position at Cambridge Law School. So, um, after I remember a friend whom um, I was telling that I wasn't so sure this was wise. Um, he said, well, I'm not worried. Um, after five years, you'll end up at the UN like everybody in Geneva who works for a big international organization or a human rights NGO. And um, I, for a while, actually thought I would end up in the Council of Europe because as European legal officer, uh, a lot of my uh, activities and time were actually spent in Strasbourg. Um, interacting a lot with the then what was called the Human Rights Directorate at the Council of Europe. Um, but eventually, uh, the fact that I had developed two areas of thematic expertise, um, as you mentioned, Vicky, racial discrimination, and economic, social and cultural rights, one of those racial discrimination was what got me uh, into uh, OATHR for my first position, because the position of secretary of the committee on the elimination of racial discrimination became vacant. And I had been working flat out, in fact, more on, on, on racial discrimination than anything else for at least a year or two at the ICJ um, in preparation for the Durban World Conference of 2001 against racism. So that's how I ended up at OHHR. Um, doing exactly for the first time what, well, I suppose I, the ICG was already doing what I, what I liked and what I wanted, but getting um, at, at the UN and in a position that corresponded to one of my thematic areas of expertise was really wonderful. Um, and I very much enjoyed um, those first six years uh, in the office uh, because at the time uh, the committee was a little bit dormant, had to be rejuvenated completely and I was very lucky to have arriving at the in terms of the members the experts members of the committee um, younger the younger generation that um, was ready also to try and, and transform the committee and I was very very privileged to be able to do that with them for six years then I moved to the Human Rights Committee because after a while I thought you know I, I needed a bit of a change and a, a challenge and the Human Rights Committee, as uh, many of you will know, uh, is considered the top committee because um, in terms of its membership, it, it has really very, very um, um, renowned um, lawyers um, and its jurisprudence is, um, is very um, important and, and very elaborate. So I did that for two years uh, until I got promoted to a P5 position as senior human rights officer and moved on to being chief of the 
so-called rule of law and democracy section, many people wonder always what, what is hiding behind this terminology. Um, in many ways, um, that team in OHEHR uh, is, um, is the sort of legal team, um, not that uh, OHEHR does not have lawyers in, in most of its other um, sections, but um, that's where the, the legal review of all the field reports is done. Uh, and that's where also many of the very tricky, legally tricky uh, mandated reports of the Human Rights Council and the General Assembly are being drafted inter alia. Um, the list of, of activities of the section is endless. So in a nutshell, this, this is me. <laughs> fascinating journey is because you, you span so many different parts of the human rights world I mean it's starting as you said there your career in academia then moving to the non-governmental sector and and then sort of into to, into the to the UN itself so you, you you've got so much kind of good advice I'm sure to offer and it sort of brings me to my first set of questions which is around sort of breaking into the sector breaking into the human rights sector and I suppose within that the first thing I wanted to ask you was around this whole um, idea of, of further study. Um, we see that you know many, many human rights organizations and employers, be it international governmental organizations, be it uh, non-governmental organizations, et cetera, are now asking for an advanced degree in human rights or public international law with a, um, a human rights element to it. From your really wide experience, what, what do you think about that? Should students be going to do a, a master's degree? And if so, when is the best time to do it? The answer is yes, absolutely. Um, just, just um, I take the example of, of OHEHR and um, our internship program. We rarely um, take on students with only um, a degree. Um, an overwhelming majority of uh, interns, and I think one of the basic internship requirements, as I said, that there may be a few exceptions, but... Um, I wouldn't know the detail of them, but um, essentially anybody now um, wanting to join um, the UN or an international human rights organization will be expected to have an LLM um, in international human rights law that to me as a lawyer would seem to be the ideal, but um, any... any um, master's degree that has an element of, of human rights knowledge uh, would be fundamental, certainly. Now, when to do it, um, when to do it is, is difficult because if you, if you don't do it after your degree, uh, what are you going to do in between? That would entail probably you finding um, training opportunities but again, as I mentioned, for example, uh, at OHEHR, getting an internship with only a degree is unlikely. Therefore, I would imagine that in the majority now of uh, also international NGOs, um, it would be also a requirement to have a, an LLM or, or a master's degree with, with uh, human rights integrated in it. So I would be tempted to say, carry on immediately after your degree to do it, if you can. Yeah, this is something that uh, when I'm sort of working with and supporting students is, is, is always a discussion point, whether they get some experience under their belt or experience under that, and, and then they come back to doing the master's degree, because of course, it is an investment of both time and money. So um, that there are issues around that. 
What about those people who, who don't necessarily come from a sort of a legal background or don't have a, a, a law degree? Is there anything particular that you, you would advise um, them? And I, I must preface what I'm going to say by the fact that I may be um, slightly accused of, of, of narrow-mindedness considering I'm a lawyer by training. Therefore, I've always found it rather difficult um, to accept the idea that you can work um, in human rights without any knowledge of human rights law. Therefore, I would say for students who've done um, international studies, international relations, political science, um, that's, that's quite okay. And in fact, quite a large number of staff at OHEHR, uh, I'm talking only about OHEHR because obviously that's, that's the UN uh, entity that I know best, quite a lot of them um, have um, a political science degree or an international relations degree. Uh, obviously, I have, in my experience at OHEHR, worked um, practically exclusively with um, other colleagues uh, or, or team members that I was supervising with a law degree because this was the nature of the positions that I held. Um, but there are positions um, that do not necessarily require that same level of legal knowledge um, in other parts um, of OHHR already, that's for sure. Um, and, and certainly in other UN entities, um, there's no, no, not necessarily a requirement of a law degree. But I would say the, the, other, the other options are the ones that I'm named before, political science being the first one, or international relations. Yeah. And even further sort of study beyond that, a PhD, for example? I would say no. I would say no. Um, there's no added value in um, a PhD for working at the UN. Um, this, this is not what will make the difference between you and another candidate that has practical experience. I think the one that has practical experience will probably get the job more easily than the one who has the PhD. So I wouldn't recommend that path apart from uh, those who know they want to uh, become academics. But otherwise, I would say no. I mean, don't, don't waste the time and, and money in doing a PhD. Um, I, I have actually quite a, a number of colleagues who continued, uh, did their PhD whilst working at OHHR. I'm not saying it's easy. They really, really suffered, but they did it. Or they took, they took a year's uh, they took a year sabbatical. Uh, to finish it, most of them, but they did it. Um, and of course, then their PhD was was really very, um, uh, very good in terms of quality because they used their work experience um, in order to, to feed into their research. But in order to join um, an international organization at the moment, I wouldn't say a PhD was, was a, good, a good option or necessary one, let's put it this way. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so thinking more about just the work that we do in, in the human rights field, in, in your view, what, what skills and qualities do you think um, is required to, to work in, in the sector? If we're talking about, again, the more sort of legal type of work, um, and if I think back on um, the skills that I was required to have, and those that I certainly required from my supervisees, 
um, rigor, <laughs> illegal rigor is certainly very, very important. Um, drafting skills is very important. Uh, for better or for worse, the UN does draft a lot of reports and um, very few people have good drafting skills and it really makes a difference, believe me. Um, it's, it's something that is not so common, also perhaps because we all work um, in a language, um, mostly English, that is not ours for most of us. Therefore, um, drafting skills um, don't come necessarily easy in another language than your own, uh, but they're, they're fundamental. Um, so those are in terms of the first two types of skills that I would say legal analysis, you know, capacity at, at good legal research, drafting skills. Uh, but then apart from that, um, I would say, and I'm not sure whether that comes into the category of skills or, or other qualities, other human qualities, you need to be fairly persevering, um, resilient. You need to be committed, motivated, no matter what. And I've always said um, to um, students that I met or our interns, if you're not prepared to be satisfied with small successes, and if you're not prepared to be patient and, and persevere in your efforts, don't work for human rights. Because the reality, you won't be surprised to hear me say so, Vicky, is that it's a long journey before you get any results for your hard work. And very often, the success is, is a small one compared to the amount of work and effort you invested in order to get that success. But, you know, you always have to think that at the end of the day, a little progress, you know, a few words in a resolution or something, ultimately may end up in saving lives, may end up in improving lives. If not now, maybe in 10 years, maybe in 20 years time. For example, when we work on the elaboration of new international treaties, we know that most often we're talking about, you know, 10 years down the line. So it, it is that kind of a job. It's not, it's not for the impatient people. Absolutely. It's about small wins, I would say. You know, sort of small incremental wins, but those build up in time, right? And, and then we sort of see change, but change doesn't happen overnight, I think. Exactly, yes. But faith, you know, you need all the time to, to keep, you know, to, to remain convinced that what you're doing is, at the end of the day, is worthy of your effort. Absolutely. Those are, those are very sort of sound words and, uh, and something that people need to kind of keep, keep close to them when they're thinking about a career in the sector. Um, if we think about sort of starting out, and, and for many people now, particularly now, wanting to work in the human rights sector, competition is so very fierce. For human rights positions so and I'm sure you've you sat on the other side of the table interviewing um, uh, staff for, for, for positions and, and new entrants so how can candidates make themselves stand out from the crowd what in your view makes a good quote-unquote good human rights CV what would you like to see on, on a CV um, the only way that I have seen that has worked 
for our former interns who all had an LLM was um, a UNV position because yeah. um, okay. um, unfortunately the reality of the UN is that this is not a very wealthy organization blame the member states for this um, and um, particularly in the field and I have to say in the hardest toughest field positions um, UNVs that are you know paid not not very much if not a pittance are very important to the to the work um, and of course, therefore, there, there's still opportunities with with the UNV positions. Um, but every time I was, you know, warning um, interns who are contemplating that path that it's not the easiest, because you um, probably will be sent to um, fairly difficult duty stations in areas of conflict. Um, very often, Africa um, and. Um, in sometimes um, places where security risks are quite high. But at the same time, I always try and, and comfort them by also saying, well, you know, this is definitely the way in for so many of, of my colleagues that I know it works. And also, if you don't do it, you know, in your late 20s, early 30s, when will you? So I would say that that is definitely um, a very important, uh, valuable option to consider. Um, how easy is it to get a UNV? I'm not even sure about that. Um, even their competition is high. So a few internships before um, in, in national or international NGOs or, or in a UN entity, uh, but for example, in OHHR, internship programs are unpaid last uh, minimum of three months with the possibility of renewing for another three months. Um, so if you have that on your CV, you know, um, one internship, say, for example, say, um, with, with an NGO at the national level over the summer, that's very often the case in the CVs we see, um, then another one for a few weeks with an international NGO, then another one for three to six months with OHHR, that's definitely a good start. Even that, of course, is no guarantee, but that's, that would be the sort of normal way to go, I would say, about then getting a UNV position and eventually from a UNV position getting what we call a fixed term, which is a sort of a contract for um, a year renewable, and then eventually get onto the ladder. Then the other way is um, the sort of more noble way, I would say, and that is to take the national competitive exams. Um, and um, unfortunately, that will depend on the availability of positions uh, for your country in a particular year. So um, some countries have a very full quotas and uh, no positions get open. Therefore, no competitive exams are organized for several years on. And then suddenly one comes up. So again, it's a bit of a potluck. Once you past the national competitive exam, you're then put on a list. Um, and that list is then given to UN entities that seek um, new, new employees. Uh, but some people have complained to me that they stayed on the list for quite a few years um, before getting a job. So I'm sorry to say nothing seems straightforward and easy, but, but that, that is the reality. And it's important to, to, to know 
how you can kind of take those first steps. Just to clarify for people who are listening, UNV is UN Volunteers. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, so, and the, the National Competitive Exam, is, is that the, um, the Young Professional? I forget the acronym. There's an acronym for it. Yes, the YPP. YPP. Yes, it right. used to be called NCE, now it's called YPP. Yes. YPP. We love acronyms at the UN. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that, it's just for, for people who are listening to it and who might want to kind of investigate the, these opportunities further. So we have the UNV, we have the, the, the YPP. Um, but what about securing just an, an internship? Because you've mentioned those kind of through mm-hmm. and through. Um, how, how easy or, or difficult is it to kind of secure an intern an internship? Okay, well, again, I can only talk for, for ATHR. So the way it works is that on our website, you can find um, uh, the link uh, to Inspira, which is the, the electronic system for which you can apply for internships. Then um, the question is, um, how do you enhance your chances of getting picked amongst dozens of applicants? And that's where networking is important. Um, I would say if you just apply, I'm not saying you won't get picked, particularly if um, your application is good, is convincing, but you enhance your chances if you um, then try and get uh, to identify uh, the particular parts of uh, OHEHR where you want to work, um, and then you try and... and, um, get a meeting um, with the people. I mean, of course, if you live um, across the planet, it's not really an option, but, you know, unfortunately, um, or fortunately, the COVID crisis has taught us something positive, which is that now we're going to rely considerably more on uh, on uh, Zoom and um, Teams, etc., or Skype for Business um, in order to, to organize meetings. So I would say really try as much as you can um, seek help from from your professor of international human rights law, uh, who hopefully would would have contacts um, in the UN in order to identify um, the people uh, whom you should be talking to. And, it, and is it just simply sort of trying to to get a, a call arranged with that person and just sort of letting them know of your interest and engagement and, and enthusiasm for an internship? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. 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 I mean, I'm not sure about the call. Some people will answer positively, some won't, but you, you can definitely try and, and get their email and email them for a start and, and seek um, a brief conversation with them yeah. over the phone. Yeah, that's really, really useful insights and advice and, and, and for people to know. In terms of kind of enhancing one's application um, for a position with the UN, whichever sort of iteration it might be, Languages always seem to be very important and very highly prized. Um, is that your your experience of, of interns that you've worked with and, and um, colleagues? Yes, in general, yes. I would say you can't possibly seek uh, a career in in um, at the UN without um, having um, at least knowledge of another good knowledge, good working knowledge of another language than your own. So amongst the six official UN languages, um, let's not you know fool ourselves. English is really the major working language, um, and um, if a student only uh, is only anglophone i wouldn't say that uh, his or her chances of getting a job were nil because the reality is that this is the most useful 
but um, in all the applications, in all the, the job vacancy announcements, you will see always it says um, working knowledge, fluency in English uh, required, um, working knowledge of French, that's, that's a sort of typical, I'm not saying all, they all like that, but typical, it would be working knowledge of French is required, um, knowledge of another uh, UN language is an advantage. And um, of course, if you've never gone through the system, you don't really know what the difference is between a requirement and an advantage exactly. People will think, well, an advantage means that even if I don't speak another language, that's okay. In fact, not, because at the time when we do the shortlist, uh, all that is considered an advantage is considered also in order to reduce the number of, of uh, uh, applicants on the shortlist. Uh, unless we don't get anybody with the right profile that also speaks a third UN language, and then that requirement or that advantage is dropped for all the candidates. But otherwise, if there are some candidates that are as good as you and speak another language, then um, you will not even be considered because the shortlist will be reduced to those that also have that advantage, that extra advantage. So in a nutshell, to summarize what I've said, I would say languages are definitely part of the deal. And if you don't speak already another official language of the UN apart from English, start immediately learning one. That's always the advice I'm giving to people is if even if you did sort of French at, you know, when you were 12, 13, 15, brush up on your French and, and get it to a place where, as you say, you feel confident and able to, to work in, in, in that language. So um, definitely it's, it's, it's a piece of advice I'm, I'm always giving people. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, the other thing in um, the application forms, what we call the PHP, don't ask me what PHP stands for, I don't know. Um, there is a, a box on languages that says uh, level of knowledge for read, write, speak, understand. And you have to put either fluent, um, confident, or basic. Um, and in order for a language to be considered as of an acceptable level, you need at least two of the boxes to be confident, minimum. In other words, you can say um, fluent read um, and then basic write, basic understand, basic speak, that won't, that won't do. But if you have a confident, confident on read and write uh, and then basic on understand um, and uh, uh, what was the other one, um, speak, then that will do. And, and again, nobody tells you this. No, absolutely. This is like gold dust, very helpful information, likes to have that. Um, but no, definitely language is, is, is very, very important for, for this world. Um, and it's something, something we've mentioned a lot, and, and perhaps now is the moment to sort of um, discuss further is that of networking. Um, and you've alluded to it certainly in, in, in our conversation there. And for many young professionals and students, it feels awkward, counterintuitive, difficult to kind of get out there and network, but we know how important it is for, for our careers and for this sector. So 
I suppose, how has networking helped you um, or helped you in your, your career and any top tips or advice that you can offer to those people who are listening and thinking, yes, I should be doing more networking than I actually am? Mm -hmm. Well, it's not easy. I mean, I was very lucky. Um, I might not have explained uh, specifically when I was still teaching at Cambridge and I was soul searching and I sort of had identified what I wanted was to work for a human rights NGO, but I had no idea um, how to go about it. And I just, you know, I was helpless. I didn't even know how to start. And the, the, the sheer luck uh, was that um, I was three on three occasions by three different people. I was told, what about the International Commission of Jurists? You're a lawyer, you want to work in human rights, that would seem ideal. And I, I'd never heard of them. And I actually, and then as I was saying before, um, somebody I knew had applied and didn't get the position that I ended up getting. And that's how I heard about the availability of that position. Uh, but I, I was very, very lucky. And unfortunately, time have become tougher um, compared to the mid nineties when I, when I made that transition from academia to the NGO world and times have also become tougher since I joined the, the UN from uh, transitioning from an international NGO to the UN. So, um, I would say, you know, I, I sort of, I'm not a good example because I more or less waited until it fell into my lap. And I would say that's definitely not the right approach. I would have, I would have left academia and I would have been happier sooner um, getting into the human rights world if I'd, you know, made a move. I'd taken initiatives to start researching, to go to London because then I lived in the UK, meet people at Amnesty, etc. I, I didn't do any of these things. So definitely um, you have to be proactive. Um, don't take my example as the right one. I was, I was lucky, uh, but, um, you know, luck is not enough. Um, and even what I said, luck plus seizing the, the chance, yes, but you need to move. You need to move. Just like in order to get an internship at OHHR, I would recommend, okay, yes, I know many candidates who've just sent the application and who got in. But there are so many, in order to enhance your chance, you have to really, you know, grab the bullet and, 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 and go out there and uh, be prepared for being ignored, for people not responding, um, insist. And the issue is always, it's very tricky because you have to insist sufficiently so that you will be, your, your phone call will be picked up, your email will be answered, but not too much so that you're seen as a nuisance and you'll be totally ignored forever. So I know it's, it's tricky, particularly for, for uh, students who've just come out of a, of a university and really don't know our world. Um, so it's, 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 um, it's a skill that you have to learn little by little by trial and error, I would say. But in the, nowadays, I would say without networking, not many things work. Even if, for example, if you, if you take the national competitive exam that I referred to before, um, then you'll, as I said, you could remain on the list forever unless you get yourself known uh, and you try and, um, and really get picked. 
what I'm advising students and young professionals is say, you know, get out there and talk to everybody because you don't know where that conversation might take you. You don't know who they know in turn and, and where that goes from there. And at the end of the day, all you're asking for in the first instance is a, an exchange, a, an informational chat. You're not asking for anything more than that. Um, so I, I think there's great value in doing it. And I don't know how um, you might use LinkedIn, but I think link, LinkedIn is a very good place to start. Um, just finding the right people to connect with. Yes. Um, so what, what is your advice to, to somebody who might be sort of listening to this and, and, as, and is really unsure about which path to follow, be it academia, be it the NGO world, and that could be the international NGO world or domestically or international organisations. They know they want to be somewhere in the human rights world, but then they haven't quite found where home might be yet. What, what would be your thoughts or advice somebody thinking that uh. hmm. that's a tough one I mean I was I was so lucky that yeah. um, I was given a chance to try the three options mm -hmm. uh, and in a way um, had I chosen one and stuck to one choice I might have sort of gone on further up the ladder in terms of hierarchy but I'm not sure that I would I regret not not having done that because I, I really didn't know at first what I wanted to do. So because I had chosen to do a PhD, for me, the obvious path was then working as an academic. Um, all I can say in order perhaps to, to help uh, your listeners, Vicky, is that what, what I found uh, as an academic, um, but that may not apply to all subjects in academia, nor nor to, to all individuals, but I did not find it fulfilling in terms of the type of research that I was doing, because to me, it was too abstract. It was too far from reality. I wanted a job where I could feel I had a more direct impact on the real world. And that's why for me, academia was not the right option. Some people find to the contrary that advancing ideas in itself is fulfilling at the personal level and they believe it serves an ultimate purpose, even if the ultimate purpose is more remote. Um, and then academia will be completely satisfying for them. It wasn't for me. Um, NGOs, um, very often I have thought or commented with colleagues um, about how it feels to be on the NGO side or on the UN side of the equation. And <laughs> I'll confess to you that very often I have, you know, sort of cursed the UN and said, I preferred to be an NGO because I had freedom of speech. Don't forget that if you work for the UN, you work for an intergovernmental organization. Therefore, you are bound to comply with certain rules at the end of the day, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I felt freer and perhaps my nature was, was <laughs> more prone to enjoying the NGO experience than the UN experience in that sense. Um, but... Um, if you work for the UN, you work where it all happens. If you work for an NGO, you try and influence what, work, what, what happens at the UN. So 
you need good people in the NGO community, but you also need good people on the inside of the UN uh, because otherwise the NGO community will not have much chance of having an impact on them, if you see what I mean. Yeah. So um, it, it very much depends on, on really whether you want to allow me to say get your, get your hands dirty by going to the field. Uh, we haven't also spoken about the difference between working for the UN at headquarters and working in the field because that's another very important difference to stress uh, in, in types of UN positions. Um, I worked at headquarters for the ICJ in Geneva, and I worked at headquarters for the UN, apart from this small short stint in, in Moscow that you mentioned. So I'm not uh, the best person to speak about what it's like to be in the field, but I have to say, if there was something that I was going to do differently, were I um, you know, to start my UN career again, it would be probably to go to the field uh, for uh, much longer. Um, and um, I was only recently speaking to a colleague whom I've known for years at headquarters in OHEHR and who resigned um, a couple of years ago. And I discovered by accident only last month that um, she was now working for us in the field and very happily. And when we spoke, she told me how she just couldn't stand the frustrations of working um, at headquarters. And she really wanted to do something different. And although she also shared with me the immense difficulty of working in a country where the government is not easy to convince to, to do things on, uh, in terms of human rights improvement, but she finds it more rewarding in terms of, of really having the sense that she, as a UN officer, human rights officer, serves a purpose. No, thank you for bringing that up because absolutely there, it's very different, a very different human experience working in headquarters than in the field in terms of... Yes, and again, the same goes for headquarters and field staff as what I said about NGO people and, and the UN. Um, when I've said to colleagues who had worked in the field but were at headquarters, God, I, you know, I wish I'd, I'd done like you. I'm so fed up with, with the sterile, sometimes feeling the sterile nature of what we do at headquarters with so little impact, working towards yet another report. Um, how many you know, diplomats will read or won't read this report and it will be shelved when we've worked on it for, year, for weeks, etc. But they all said the same thing. They all said, no, no, but don't be so sure that and that um, the, um, um, the headquarters work is, is uh, useless. It's not. Uh, we need you at headquarters to guide us, uh, to provide us with support. Uh, for example, my team, the rule of law section, would get a lot of uh, draft legislation to comment upon draft constitutions. Uh, we would be requested to go to the field to provide training to to um, um, people in the field. So there's a combination of two that works well together. And I think in terms of anyone who joins the UN, I think the good option is to have, have a, a try at both. But as we said before, uh, talking about how to 
reach uh, a position eventually to get a position anyway uh, chances are that um, more and more nobody will be able to get a position at headquarters without having done first of all a field position mm-hmm. now that, that's very useful to have that insight moving a little bit away from sort of that, that breaking into the sector i just wanted to ask a, a couple of questions around sort of the actual day-to-day of working in the, the human rights world and um, whether you could share with us your your sort of typical day, maybe there is no typical day, in, in the last role that you had at, at, at the UN, sort of what, what did your day look like? Well, we're recording this in, in um, of course, in, in lockdown. Okay, well, yeah. Um, well, I suppose lockdown or not, the day is not... was not necessarily so different. As as team leader, of course, bear in mind my days was very specific because of my position. Therefore, as as chief of uh, the rule of law section, um, my um, day would be a mix of management um, tasks, uh, we have to do a lot of requirement, um, a lot of recruitment-related uh, tasks. We have to do a lot in terms of budgeting. Uh, these are all the things that nobody wants to do. But unfortunately, uh, when you reach um, this kind of mid mid management um, level, then um, they're they're definitely part of the job and a, and a big chunk of it, whether we like it or not. Um, then. Um, the rest of the day would be providing um, guidance to colleagues in the team uh, who, as I said, would work um, on very tricky legal questions. So, of course, that's that's the interesting part of the job, um, reviewing drafts, um, taking part in uh, management meetings. Um, in a way, when, when, you're, when you're managing a team, you're very much a fireman or a firewoman. You know, you're there to extinguish fires wherever, <laughs> wherever they arise. And I, I, I would you know, wake up every morning, do exactly what you're not supposed to do for your well-being, immediately get onto my email, lockdown or not, huh? even before going to the office, and see what the last crisis is particularly because we also uh, work very much with New York. Therefore, unfortunately, I have to confess, my days um, would prolong into the evening because, you know, by the time I would reach home in the evening, um, I would still be likely to receive messages until I went to bed from our New York office requiring, uh, you know, an answer or a speech for um, our uh, Assistant Secretary General in New York for the next day. Uh, and then in the morning, I would wake up um, early looking for the, the answer they provided me, um, knowing, we being reassured by the fact that we then had the morning to react because they would only get our answer when they woke up and got to the office by early afternoon. This doesn't sound like much fun. I'm sorry, but that's the reality. <laughs> yes. Unfortunately, um, as I said, for us in particular, because, um, uh, well, when I say us, I mean the rule of law section. And I'm sorry, I still say us, although I'm no no longer entitled to do that because my successor would object. Um, But um, I I would um, definitely consider it as as very much part of my job to also provide 
um, all that was needed to our New York office um, on, on, on very tricky issues of all kinds. And, and drafting speeches or, or providing legal input into speeches of our senior managers was also a very important part of the job, which is probably why when you asked me before what skills were important, I mentioned drafting skills because where I was working at OHEHR was always very much part and parcel of what I did. Absolutely. Um, given the sort of just, just the, the, the variety of work that you've done and the high level, and, and what, what would you say has been a highlight, or perhaps have been a couple of highlights of your career to date, if you can? Yeah, um, well, th- th- there are many of different types. Um, but the first thing that immediately jumped to my mind when you asked was my very first mission ever. Um, in uh, 1995, when I joined the ICJ, when I went, I was sent on a human rights needs assessment mission to Kyrgyzstan, which in those days was really being sent to the wilderness um, in, in quite difficult security conditions. Uh, but I, I, you know, I will never forget that experience um, because that was it. You know, I had finally gotten out of my Cambridge ivory tower and I was doing what what I wanted and and for me that that remains the most important moment for me that that really meant I finally was doing what 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 I wanted to do um, and then um, a year later um, I went back to Kyrgyzstan uh, on the basis um, of um, the, the mission a year before, uh, in order to organize a workshop, a week-long workshop, uh, on the domestic implementation of international human rights instruments. Um, and we did that with the Constitutional Court of Kyrgyzstan. And that was another, and for me, that was the materialization of, of the, the mission before, the mission before had led us to to make contact with the constitutional court that were good enough for them to accept to do this with us. And frankly, we were also extremely proud because we were there before um, the UN, you know, uh, as an NGO, we were the ones to do that training with the, well, the sort of most noble judicial institution <laughs> in the country. So for me, that was extremely rewarding. Um, then other moments when I was very proud of what I was doing and, and I found it very rewarding was when I was working with the Council of Europe. And um, sorry, now you'll get me started. You won't be able to get me to stop. <laughs> reminiscing, I'm to reminisce, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. and, and um, I managed to get the ICJ to be recognized really as very um, much on the, you know, on par with the, with the governmental delegates when they were negotiating in the Steering Committee on Human Rights of the Council of Europe, uh, or not, I suppose, negotiating the draft of Protocol 12 uh, to the ECHR on discrimination. Uh, because before me, um, NGOs had observer status, well, three NGOs had observer status in a CDDH, and, and they were not really very vocal nor very influential. So I was very pleased with that. Yeah, it's funny, you see, it's funny because definitely the ICJ is, is something that stands out in my memory. 
maybe more than than the UN. I don't know if it's because, as I said, this was it. Finally, I had done my breakthrough in the human rights world, but also because I was freer in a way um, of being creative and 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 doing what I what I wanted. Whereas in the UN, you are um, you know you are a UN official, and you have certainly boundaries in your in your freedom of action because you have to comply with the rules. It's a rather hierarchical uh, organization until now, still now. Um, and so without wanting to discourage your listeners, you have to be prepared for that. Not to say that this is not rewarding, not to say this is not important. And you know, I will continue forever to defend um, the values of the UN and to consider uh, that those uh, its detractors who say the UN serves no purpose are wrong. Um, I think the UN continues to achieve a lot um, with very little money, uh, certainly in the in the world of human rights. Considering that you know the UN is supposed to rest on three pillars: development, peace, and security, and human rights. And human rights get barely above three percent of the UN overall budget. So I think there's a lot, a lot being achieved with, with those 3%. And of course, all the extra budgetary resources that my colleagues at OHHR have to work so hard at obtaining. So in terms of achievement in the UN, um, when, I, when I mentioned um, my first position, the, the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, I was very proud of the fact that um, when I arrived in the, as secretary of the committee, um, NGOs were barely um, recognized as valid interlocutors by members of the committee. Um, and I managed to convince the, the members to change this completely. Um, and um, also there's a procedure um, that CERD um, had, but that was dormant when I became secretary, called the Early Warning and Urgent Action Procedure that permits NGOs um, to um, ring the alarm bell when there's a situation of crisis that requires attention uh, of the committee rapidly. And one of um, the most poignant moments was when a community called the Western Shoshone in uh, the United States of Native Americans came um, to give a, a briefing to the members of the committee. Um, and um, the committee issued a decision condemning the US uh, for um, not acting against the um, big um, mining companies that were destroying the um, the land, the native lands of that community, and that was and being told by by that community how important our work was, that was very important. That was really a very rewarding moment. But there's many, 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 many. So just give me two hours, and we'll talk. <laughs> you shared some really wonderful sort of moments with us and, and, and across the board in terms of your career where both, both sort of spanning the, the non-governmental sector and then the UN as well and I think we all as human rights professionals or we get to a certain point in our career have have real moments where we where we you know that, that resonate with us or that are kind of stay with us in terms of what we've done um careers wise um the, the final sort of question I have in this little chapter and then we'll, we'll sort of start to close is is the importance of mentorship um again to the our listeners of people who are starting out there sort of somebody who walks alongside you as you are on your human rights journey 
what do you say to, to that about the value of mentorship and having somebody who, who, can, who you can go to, or maybe more than one person actually, who can help guide you, advise you uh, as, as you go on your path? I think it's a very good idea. I think it's it's really um, helping. And um, in fact, I, I joined the mentorship um, um, scheme in the UN a few years ago um, to help new newcomers who had done the national competitive exam and were joining OHCHR. And um, I can think of at least one with whom I developed a very close relationship and, and I would like to believe that I supported her at times that were very difficult for her. So um, I think, yes, there's a lot of value in that. Um, and um, I, I would definitely encourage anyone who, who um, is willing to, to mentor young students to, to do it. And I would be very willing actually myself to, to continue doing it. Um, because this is not an easy journey um, and I think any any support um, they can get is useful. So the, the, the sort of final question really, or final, last questions, is, is around sort of the lifestyle and the challenges um, around working in the human rights field because we both know how very tough it can be that we're working on really difficult issues, torture, death penalty, gender-based violence, and, and that work affects us and, and touches us in a, in a very profound way. And I think it's very important for those starting out in the sector to know about this and to understand the, the impact that it can have. Um, again, it's really asking you what advice that you can offer to listeners about that and how, you know, what, what coping mechanisms or strategies and tools that we can use to kind of take good care of ourselves. That's, that's really a tough one, Vicky, because... Um... In fact, I, I, I know of so many staff members of HHR who have suffered or are still suffering from burnout. So that's definitely a real risk if you work for human rights. Um, but that's also what makes, makes it special, you know. And I, I, I would like to believe that working for human rights is not like any job um well I'm, I'm not going to tell you anything you didn't know and that is not stating the obvious but i still think it's important that it's it's more than a job i mean everybody has to earn a living including us but it's it's a commitment it's a passion it's a you know it's a profound personal um belief um, that you want to spend your life trying to change matters I mean, that's how I approached it. Um, I, I started in my very, you know, early years at university, getting involved in politics. I didn't find that very rewarding. Maybe I chose the wrong, the wrong party to join. But um, I ultimately um, realized that the reason why I had gone into politics was the wrong one. Um, I wanted to get into human rights. That's that was what I wanted. I wanted to change things um, in in at my level in in my activities in my job in my in my daily work. So um, the, the the danger, of course, is that means that you never stop. And as I said, you know, I I gave you the completely wrong model of what you should be doing. You know. You get up in the morning, you don't even get out of bed, you immediately grab your phone, look at your email, see the latest crisis, 
immediately jump into action, rush to the office, already adrenaline going, you know, and then in the evening you get home and you still are on your phone because New York might be emailing you and asking you for something. It never ends. And that's not good. And that's not good. Um, that's not the right approach. But the, the challenge is how do you ensure that even if your job is your passion, you take a step back, a healthy step back, and you don't drink, eat, sleep your job. Sleep, drink, and eat human rights. Because you will, you will definitely get burnt out. This You can't go on forever. So um, always make an effort to, to keep a certain, um, if not detachment, to draw boundaries. Um, I know um, colleagues in my team who um, have children have been helped by the fact that they go home and they have to look after the kids. They have no choice. Therefore, they, they you know, would tell me um, my working hours will be, because we have flexible working hours at OHHR, I will work from 7.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. At 4.30, even if the world is falling apart, I'm leaving because my kids are at the school gate. So, sorry, that's the way it's going to be. Um, and, and in a way, they are faring better because they have this obligation to stop at a particular point, whether they like it or not. When you don't have uh, children to oblige you to do that, and only yourself, it's harder, but you must. So detachment, um, healthy detachment, as I called it, um, is, is absolutely necessary. Um, otherwise, you won't you won't survive it for too long, or you survive it in a in an unhealthy way, and it doesn't help the job. It doesn't help. I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't help the cause. Absolutely, we need to be fit and well in ourselves if we want to be helping the cause or or whichever area in human rights we're working in. We need to be sort of robust and well and, and able to do it. Absolutely. You know, I, I remember someone in my team who was dealing with the issue of death penalty. And that meant um, also dealing with uh, urgent requests for interventions for people who were, uh, whose execution was pending uh, the next day. And after a few years, he told me, move me, um, put me somewhere else. I can't do this anymore because I don't sleep. It really upsets me. Um, he did it for a fair number of years. Uh, but before it really got too much, but at least he had the wisdom to say, no, this is it. I have to stop. Absolutely. And these are, these are such important words and, and such um, useful advice that you're imparting because it's something that people who are starting out in this sector, as much as having the passion and the commitment to do this work, we, you need to know the flip side as well, that it's not easy work and it, and it will affect you and it will impact upon you. So as we bring our discussion to a, an end, um, what are your sort of final words of advice for people who are still saying, I, I really want to work in this sector. I know it's where my heart lies. It's what I want to do. What, what are the final sort of um, words of wisdom and, and pearls of wisdom that you, you can offer? Uh, persevere. Don't give up. Um, it's, it's probably going to be difficult unless you're very, very, very lucky. Uh, it's not impossible. 
um, unfortunately, you know, there, continue, there will always be need for human rights workers. Um, but you have to be prepared um, that this will not be a linear journey, or it's unlikely to be. And therefore, um, you may, like me, need to be patient, you know, in order to do my breakthrough, I had to wait for eight years, well, apart from when I was a little bit more satisfied with my job at Cambridge, when I was teaching a few seminars in human rights, but, but in order to find really my vocation, what I really wanted to do, it took me eight years. So um, don't, don't despair. Um, and uh, you may end up having to do something similar, which is go elsewhere, work um, on the margins of, of your passion, um, but always bear it in mind and always try and, and find a way of, of keeping it a little bit alive in order to get back to it and perhaps then find eventually your ideal job in it. But be prepared that this is, this is something that you need to remain convinced of and fight for. That's, that, that's, um, that's a very wonderful note to finish on. Um, a final thing, if, if people want to meet you or find out more about you, what, what's the best way that they can um, reach you or connect with you? LinkedIn, LinkedIn, very simply, I'm on LinkedIn okay. under my name, Natalie Proving. Thank you. Natalie, you've been a, a wonderful guest. Thank you for being so open and sharing your own journey and the ups and downs and the challenges. And I know that this is going to be of, of huge value to people who are, who are listening. So a really very big thank you indeed. It was a great pleasure. And, and I hope to continue the conversation with, with some of the listeners.